morning. If I could have you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of First Timothy. Again, we're in chapter 6. We have this message this Sunday, and next message we'll finish the book of First Timothy. And then we'll be moving on to the book of Titus. We're in chapter 6, verses 11 through 16 this morning. And I'd like to talk to you this morning about persevering well as a Christian, taking it all the way to the end, finishing the fight, going all the way until the moment you close your eyes in this life and you open your eyes in heaven. Paul has been ministering to Timothy through this scripture here. And particularly this section, I think, really kind of points to different areas how we can finish strong, finish well as believers in Christ. Now, understand that the gift of God, the gift of faith, coming into the kingdom is a work of God. God gets the credit. But the sanctification process, the day-to-day, all the way to the point we die, this is where we work with God. God's Holy Spirit speaking to our heart, us listening through the Word, through prayer, and obeying the Lord. And as we progress on, it's a working together. Now, some people think that perseverance is kind of like God kind of picks you up and just carries you to heaven. No, it's a working with God. It's part of the sanctification process, and it's God working through us, taking us all the way to the end. If you remember, there were some issues there in, in Ephesus, there were some false teachers, and they were teaching false doctrine. And what we're going to see Paul do with Timothy here, he's going to contrast where these false teachers are and where a true believer in Christ and a follower of Christ should be. So let's read the text this morning. First, let me pray for the Word. Let's do that. Father, we thank You for the Word of God, and I thank You, Lord, that You've given us this Word. I pray even now, Father, for the hearts of everyone here, that they would be open and listening and that you would speak to him by your Holy Spirit through the teaching of this message. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16 says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, how does a Christian persevere in the faith? The first thing is he flees harmful things. He runs. He turns. He goes. He doesn't stay. He flees. Now, what Paul, Paul says here, he, he says to Timothy, he acknowledges Timothy, he says, you man of God. Now, this statement, man of God, is only used twice in the New Testament, and both of them are written by Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, the man of God, kind of an expression of all men who are in Christ. But here, he specifically says, you, man of God. He's making it personal. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you've been separated out. You've been called by God specifically. You've been set aside as a servant of God. 
So this is particularly written to Timothy as a man of God and particularly as a pastor of the church. But ladies, listen up. What's said here is for all of us as Christians. So I don't want you to check out. And all of you who aren't pastors, listen up. This is for you. This is going to be very helpful for us to know how do we just keep moving? How do we keep going? How do we keep honoring the Lord in faith? Now, Paul viewed himself as a servant. In fact, he uses, when he speaks of himself, the, in the Greek, it's called doulos. That's literally, you could say slave, or some would say bond slave. Listen to Paul in Romans 1.1. He says, Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then speaking about he and Timothy together in Philippians, in Philippians 1.1, he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The idea is this, you're owned by God. As a Christian, you were bought at a price. God not only called you, he bought you. He purchased you out of darkness, brought you into light. You're his, you're his servant. And he's particularly telling Timothy, Timothy, oh, you man of God, listen up, Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, you are in a class throughout history that I've pulled to myself. I mean, think about it. Over 70 times, man of God is used in the Old Testament. You've got Moses, you've got Abraham, you've got all the prophets. All of them would be considered a man of God. And the man of God is this, you're more interested in the things of the eternal than you are in the temporal, in the things of this life. So what are we as people of God supposed to do? Well, the first thing he says here, we're to flee, we're to run. Sometimes you stay and fight, other times you flee. And Paul would say, if you want to persevere well, if you want to make it to the end, you need to learn what to flee from. You need to be willing to say, boy, I better get out of this one. Now, in in the text here, this is a present active imperative verb. That means it's starting now and goes on forever, as long as you're here on earth. It's continual. As Christians, we're continually fleeing. Part of our life is running away from sin, turning away from those things that can hinder our walk. And what Paul is particularly doing here, that word flee is the Greek word fuego, and it literally means fugitive. So what are we fleeing from? What Paul is going to contrast here are those false teachers that he was talking about before that had wandered away from the faith. Look right above our text there at verses 9 and 10. He says, but those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, what? They've wandered away from the faith. So what Paul's trying to do here, he's trying to contrast those who've wandered away from those who stand and stay and, and are in the faith. And one way that we do that, guys, as we flee harmful things. Now, these false teachers, remember, they were pursuing riches. They were pursuing the things of this world. And Paul would say, in the opposite for us as Christians, we need to pursue the things of God, the things that edify the Lord, the things that make a difference in our life. Now, he just finished telling Timothy that these false teachers, they taught strange doctrines, that they were teaching things that weren't true, that they were conceited, that they had a love of money. And us as Christians, we're to, we're to flee from all those things. But there are some specific things that dishonor the Lord, that the Bible says we need to definitely flee. One of them is this. God's people should flee false teaching. 
If it's kind of wacky and weird, trust me, it's wacky and weird. It's not from the Lord. This is how Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Do not pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which gives rise to mere speculations and furthering the administration of God which is in the faith. There's a lot of weird stuff on the internet, a lot of weird stuff that's just kind of flowing out there. You need to flee that. Don't sit down and listen to it. If you need to help somebody through it, that's one thing, but don't you become a part of it. Flee that. Another thing we need to flee is we need to flee sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against the body. Now, I think when Paul originally wrote that, he was thinking about temple worship. There was the temple worship of the goddess Diana, and they had sexual prostitutes, that kind of thing, that would go out and draw people in. It was a form of worship. And so Paul's mind is thinking that. But for us today, it's any sexual sin outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. It's anything like pornography or being involved in something that's just inappropriate. Don't go there. Don't be part of it. God's people are also supposed to flee idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, flee idolatry. Now, this is your heart being given over to anything that isn't God. And here in Orange County, particularly, it's a love for riches. We see it everywhere. It's just giving over to the things of this world. But it could be a relationship. It could even be your job. If it takes place before God, then that becomes an idolatry, something that has first place in your life. And the Bible says to flee that. And the last thing is, he tells Timothy to flee youthful lusts. Now, that's not necessarily just sexual stuff. That could be kind of the the partying mentality, the thing of just kind of hanging out with the crowd, being part of that. He says, don't be involved in that. Be involved with God's people. Do the things that honor the Lord. And so the Christian life really is a life of fleeing. And I like the way that Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14 puts it. It says, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not proceed the way of the evil man. Avoid it and do not pass by it. Turn away from it, pass on. That's the life of a Christian. We pass on what's wicked and we honor God with our life. And it makes me think about Joseph in the Old Testament, doesn't it? I mean, most of you know the story of Joseph. He was sold by his own family as a slave to Egypt And he's brought into the household of a rich man by the name of Potiphar. And Potiphar liked Joseph. In fact, he gave him the number one position in the house. The problem was, one, Joseph was a handsome man. Two, Potiphar's wife began to like Joseph. And so she starts making advances to Joseph. And we know the story in Genesis chapter 9, verse 9, she kind of confronts him. And this is his response. He says, there's no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Well, she waits a little while, and she waits until all the servants are out of the house, and then she kind of corners Joseph. And this is what happens in Genesis 39, 11, and 12. It says, Now it happened one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he went outside. That's the idea. When you know it's tough, when you see it's sin, sometimes it's just better to run. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Sometimes the best way to be a strong Christian is to flee those things that can harm us. Now, I don't know if you like this, but I like classic movies. I like the really old ones. And I was thinking about that movie with Humphrey Bogart and, uh, 
Catherine Hepburn. It was, it's, called, it's called The African Queen. Anybody you guys seen that? Now, it kind of fits this idea about persevering. And so I'd, now, Humphrey Bogart, his name was Charlie Allnut, and he's kind of a hard-drinking guy, and he has a steamboat, and he, he, he brings, I don't know, ammunition, tools, supplies, and even letters to people in Africa, and it's, and it's based sometimes in the early 1900s. And he meets up with Catherine Hepburn. She's a missionary, a Christian missionary. And it's right at the beginning of World War I. And so all of a sudden, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, they have to flee. And so they get in this boat called the African Queen, and their goal is to make it to a lake. And so they have to go through this whole river system. But they experience all these difficulties. They get attacked by insects. One time they're attacked by the Germans. Another time they have to fight the rapids. And on and on they go until they kind of hit this river section that is starting to get shallower and shallower. And you kind of have this scene where they have these long poles and and they're just kind of persevering, trying to make it through. And and all of a sudden it gets even shallower and they get stuck. And then Humphrey Bogart, he jumps out of the, the boat and he takes a rope and he starts tugging on it until he finally is exhausted And he crawls into the boat exhausted, and he turns to Rosie, is her name, and he says, you want to know the truth, doll? He said, even if we had all our strength, we never could get out of this mud. He says, we're finished. And Catherine Hepburn, she turns to him, and she says, I know it. And they both, at that moment, they resign themselves to death. And Charlie, he falls asleep, but Rosie, she does one thing they haven't done. She says a prayer. And she says, Lord... We've come to the end of our journey, and in a little while, we'll stand before you. Open the doors to heaven for Charlie and me. And I started to think, that's kind of cool, because what happens at that moment is all of a sudden the camera, it pans back, and you see within 100 yards is the lake, but they can't see it because of the marsh in front of them. And then it pans back even farther and kind of swings over, and it shows the headwaters of the river that they were on, and there's a gigantic storm, pounding rain, and all of a sudden this torrent of water comes, and it picks up the boat, and it carries them into the lake, and the movie ends. And I was thinking, some of you guys are bogged down. You're stuck. You didn't flee, and now you're stuck in your sin. And sometimes the best way to flee is just simply to surrender to the Lord and to turn to Him in prayer and saying, God, I can't do it, but I believe you can do it. The Bible says that we're to flee harmful things, but I think for some of you this morning, it might be you need to give up and surrender to the Lord, and that would be the best way to flee. First thing, flee harmful things. Second thing, pursue godly things. Pursue godly things. So sometimes as a Christian, we have to flee, but other times we need to pursue the things of God and particularly godly virtues. Look at the second half of verse 11. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Pursue these things is what Paul is saying. Now, I think sometimes people think that there's some kind of a supernatural glue that kind of just sticks us to God, and then he kind of carries us, if you will, all the way into heaven. But I think more so, it's a give and take with God. We're seeking God regularly, asking him to move by his spirit to help us in prayer. And that idea of pursue, it literally means to take hold of. That's the idea, or, or following after. There's a working with God in the Christian faith. It's, 
And that's how we persevere. He, he's working through us, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us through his word, through other people. And we, again, are obeying the Lord. We're active. It's not passive. Now, I love the way that it's put in Romans 13 by Paul. Romans 13, 13, and 14. Listen to this. He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. Guys, that's fleeing. And then he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make, make no provision for the flesh. That's pursuing. That's a putting on. That's a taking hold of. That's the idea here. You, you take off those things. You flee those things that don't honor the Lord, but you put on those things that honor the Lord. And so what Paul says here is that there are three sets of virtues that we need to put on, three pairs, if you will. It's righteousness and godliness, faith and love, perseverance and gentleness. The first two, righteousness and godliness, have to do, the first one, righteousness, has to do with external behavior, and godliness has to do with the attitude of your heart, your motives. So righteousness translates from a familiar Greek term as diakosune, and it means to do what is right. It's it's in relation to God and man. What it really means is holy living. It's not the righteousness that you receive from Christ when you were born again. It's, it's now that you are born again, live in such a way that honors God. It's the outside of your life. It's what your family sees when you're at home and you're not here. It's, it's what people see when you're at work, the way you live, the way you talk, the way you act. It's the way you are in a restaurant with the waiter when they forget your food. And it's all that. It's, as a Christian, how are you? What's your outward What's the holiness of your life? What do people see in you? Do they see Christ? Godliness is the internal. It's the motivation of the heart. It's the, the part of you that motivates you to want to follow after God. It's, it's the inward attitude and motivation of the heart. The Greek word is eusibia, and it refers to a reverence. It's, it's the heart of worship before the Lord. It's the heart where you're just saying, you know, Lord, I love you so much. Just like Joseph, how could I do this to God? That kind of a heart. I think Romans 12.1 says it best. It says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual act of worship. And Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12.28, therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's the heart of godliness, that you want to present to God a heart of reverence and awe. A wow, Lord. I stand back in awe of who you are. That's your desire. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.9 says this, is, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's the idea. You know what? I just want to please the Lord. I want my walk to be an example of Christ because I want to please him. So the, kind of the horizontal, you have righteous conduct, and the vertical is the godliness part of your heart, reaching out to the Lord in worship. And Paul spelled this out in 1 Timothy 4.8 where he said, but godliness is profitable for all, all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. John Owen said this, he said, what a minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that is what he is and no more. Who you are in private, on your knees before God, is who you truly are before God. Righteousness and godliness. The second set of virtues are faith and love. Now, faith isn't the initial act of trust that you have 
in Christ. I think the faith that he's talking about here is faithfulness. It's the virtue of honoring God again, being faithful to the things of God. I like the way one commentator put it. He he said this, he said, faith is simply confident trust in God for everything. It involves loyalty to the Lord and confidence in His power, purpose, plan, provision, and promise. Faith is the atmosphere in which the man of God exists. He trusts God to keep and fulfill His word, and then he strives to obey Him faithfully. That's the idea. It's a trust in God, and we're striving to obey Him. That's faithfulness. And it's combined with love. And the Greek word here is agape love, other-oriented love. Love for others even more than yourself. It's the love Christ showed us on the cross. It's the love of God that's been poured into your hearts. And 1 John 4, 7 puts it like this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, again, he's doing this in contrast with the false teachers. If you remember, the contrast is that the false teachers, they didn't love people. They They were ripping people off. They were trying to get them for their money. The only reason they did ministry is because they wanted something for them or from them. But the true Christian, you're one who loves them, and you're willing even to sacrifice for them. That's the idea. Righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. And the last two are perseverance and gentleness. Again, the theme of this section, I think, is perseverance. I think that, that Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him to continue on, to, to press forward in the faith. And this, this idea of perseverance is somebody who has the ability to endure, to just hang in there, even when the times are tough, even when it's heavy, even when you think, I don't think I can do it anymore. That's when God is your strength. This is where you see in Philippians where it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the heart of somebody who's persevering. And gentleness has kind of the components of of meekness and humility. But meekness, so that you understand, meekness is power under control. I think that probably is the best one for here for gentleness. It's even when somebody may slander your name, you stand strong in Christ, but your response is one of a gentle spirit one where you stand in Christ and He changes your heart so that you may treat others with honor and respect to glorify your Father. You know, when I, I read about Johnny Erickson Tata, she's been a, been a Christian now for over 45 years. And I read this article where she was reflecting back when she was a 14-year-old and, and that's when she received Jesus. She embraced Him as Savior and Lord. But she had an idea about Christianity that it was kind of like the American dream. And she said, when you know, I was a Christian, I thought that I would lose weight, get good grades, get voted captain of the hockey team, I'd go to college, marry a wonderful man who's very handsome, he's going to make $250,000 a year, and we'd have 2.5 children. She says, it was me focused. What can God do for me? And she said, I kind of had the idea that, that maybe I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus. She says, but my boyfriend and I, we were doing things that did not honor God. And in April 1967, I came home from a sword Friday night date, and I cried out and I said, God, I'm staining your reputation by saying I'm a Christian, yet I'm doing one thing on Friday night, and I'm doing another thing on Saturday. God, I'm such a hypocrite. I want want you to change my life, God. 
please do something in my life that will jerk it right side up because I'm making a mess of this Christian faith in my life, and I don't want to do that. I want to glorify you. And then she had her diving accident that broke her neck three months later. And immediately after the accident, she said this. She said, I told God you'll never be trusted with another one of my prayers. And she struggled for months with depression, wanting to die. But then one prayer changed all that. And this is the prayer. She said, oh God, if I can't die, show me how to live. And God did. And God has used that woman to reach millions for Christ's sake. And thousands upon thousands are Christians today because of her testimony of how faithful God is to someone who's a quadriplegic that can't even move practically her arms. But God is faithful and he is her strength. And some people say, well, Pastor Rob, I don't think I can live out those virtues. Join the club. But I want to share with you what I think is brilliant, and it's from Chuck, Pastor Chuck Smith. When it comes to perseverance, Chuck said this. He simply said, abide in Christ. That's the key. Abide. This is what Jesus said in John 15, 4 and 5. He said, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I am him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that sounds really good, Pastor Robert. I mean, how do you abide in Christ? Well, I think it comes, goes something like what Joni said. In her prayer, she said, Lord, show me how to live. If your heart wants to abide and you mean it from your heart, trust me in this one. God will show you how to abide in him because he makes a promise. And Jesus said it in Matthew 7, 7, and 8. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and he who knocks, it will be opened to him. If you're truly seeking Christ and you really want to know, ask him and he'll show you how to abide in him. Two things, flee harmful things, pursue godly things. There's a third thing, and this one is fight. Fight for truth. As believers, we stand our ground when it comes to truth, and, and the line of truth is where the fight begins. The enemy is always bringing in a lie, but we as God's people need to stand strong and always fight for truth. And the way that Paul puts it here in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life, which you were called to, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. The man of God, he, he's known for what he flees, he's known for what he pursues, but he's also known for what he fights for, what he's willing to just take the hits, what he's willing to go into battle for. Every faithful Christian needs to be a fighter. Matter of fact, you're called to fight the good fight. Now, again, this is in context with these false teachers. And we're to fight for faith because some had wandered away from the faith. And it's not just any fight. It's, it's but a fight for faith. And I think the idea here, when, when, when they speak about truth, it's a fight for truth. The pastoral epistles use different terms for truth. It calls it the truth. It calls it sound teaching. It calls it the message. It calls it sound doctrine. And what he says here is he says, fight the good fight of faith. And he says, take hold 
of the eternal life to which you were called. And I think what Paul's telling him, he's saying, Timothy, remember your point of conversion. Remember that point when you were saved. Remember who you were. Remember who you are now. It's all about eternal life. I mean, why are we fleeing from harmful things? Why are we pursuing after glorious virtues? What are we fighting for? Because they all relate to eternal life. We stand our ground in truth because if you buy the lie, you will not see Christ. You will not see God. And he's saying, Timothy, you take a stand, and this is worth fighting for. And it's interesting that the Greek language in this for fight the good fight, it suggests some kind of athletic action. I think particularly here he's talking about a boxer. You could maybe, if you're a runner, you could relate it to running. But in the Greek, it literally means agonize the good agony. Agonize the good agony. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I, I do a boxing class, so I really related to this one. But here's the idea. When you do boxing, there's a point in, in a boxing workout where your heart is burning and your legs are burning and your arms, they feel like lead weights. It's at that point you push through and you keep punching, you keep going, and you go all the way to the end until you're absolutely exhausted. And then you say, wow, that was a great workout. That's the idea. You keep pushing for the gospel. You keep pushing through even when it doesn't feel good, even when it's not fun. And for some of you, you know what a good fight is? You're on your knees every day because your child is lost, does not know Christ. And maybe some of you ladies here, you have a husband and he does not know Jesus. And God's calling you to be the example to him. That's fighting the good fight. You're holding your tongue because somebody spoke an evil word against you. They slandered you, but yet you say nothing. That's fighting the good fight. Maybe you see somebody in need and you're low on funds, but you think the, the Lord is just, he's, he's talked to your heart and you give anyway. Guys, that's fighting the good fight. It's a pressing forward for the faith. Maybe it's coming around a single mom that you see they're struggling and you say, you know what, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, but you know what, I'm going to do it anyway. Why? Because it glorifies my God. That's fighting the good fight. And Paul would say, fight, guys. Fight for the faith. Be the Christian he's calling you to be. Take the stand for truth. Don't give in. And nobody said it better than Paul. And this is how he put it in 2 Timothy 4, 6. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I kept the faith. All the way to the end. Faithful to his Lord. Now, this idea about taking hold of eternal life, it's the idea of taking hold of the gospel. What is eternal life? This is what Jesus said. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This idea about fighting is fighting for truth. It's about fighting for the gospel. It's willing to take your stand on truth because you understand that there's no other way that a person can be saved except through the truth of the gospel that we're sinners in need of much grace from God. And he poured out his grace by sending his son to die on the cross for us. Now, one man that I look as a fighter for the faith was William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in 1494, and then he was educated at Oxford. After he completed his education, he felt like he wanted to learn the, the, the Greek New Testament. And so he went away to study the Greek New Testament, and he felt like God, by the Holy Spirit, told him, to translate it into the common everyday language of the English people. 
Now that went directly against the Catholic Church because everything was in Latin. And so what William Tyndale did is he found a, a financially wealthy merchant that backed him. And he lived in a town called Antwerp. And he went ahead and he translated all of the New Testament into the common day English. And then he had it printed in Germany and he smuggled it back in to England and it started to be distributed. Now, King Henry VIII was the king, but I think those who were really in charge was the Catholic Church. And so you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, he got really upset that there was this New Testament floating around that everybody could read in the common everyday language. And they brought William Tyndale in and they put him on trial for heresy. And they convicted him of heresy because he believed that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And so right before he was killed, and by the way, he, he died by being strangled and then his body was burned. Right before he was killed, he, he prayed a prayer, and this is his prayer. He said, Lord, would you open up the eyes of the king to the truth? And then he died. But here's the cool part. A year later... King Henry VIII, he conscripted to have the King James Bible made. And what he didn't know is that the interpretation of the New Testament, 90% of it came from William Tyndale. And that prayer was answered right there. And King Henry VIII, not knowing, said, distribute this Bible throughout all of England. And we, many of you probably have a King James Version on your, on your shelf. He fought for truth. We need to fight for truth. Flee harmful things, pursue godly things, fight for truth. And the last one is keep the scriptures. A person who's going to endure to the end is a person who will keep the word of God. Without the word of God, you're going to be weak. You're going to be knocked down. You're not going to make it in strength. Look at verses 13 through 16. It says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So he begins with what I call an awesome charge right here to Timothy. He says, you know, Timothy, I'm, I'm charging you in the presence of God and his son, Jesus Christ. This awesome charge is, is for him to, to be this man that knows when to flees. He knows when to fight. He's the kind of man that takes hold of the truth but it's all under the authority of God the Father and God the Son. And then he points to those two awesome witnesses, and he basically kind of does this not so much to scare Timothy, but to encourage Timothy. To say, Timothy, you have the witness of God the Father. He's with you. And you have the witness of Jesus Christ, who was a witness before Pontius Pilate. Now you be that witness before men. You stand your ground, Timothy. And then he gives him the awesome charge. He's, look at verse 14. He says, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. That word commandment is used in the singular numerous times in the New Testament. And it refers to the whole law of God. It's not this commandment versus that commandment. It refers to the whole of the Bible. Now, particularly, I think this is clear in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. So let me share that with you. It says, 
that you should remember that the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So the holy prophets is the Old Testament. The commandment of the Lord taught by your apostles is the New Testament. It's the whole of Scripture. He's saying, Timothy, you keep the word, man. You be faithful to the word of God. And I particularly like the way he says this. He says, without stain, keep it pure, Timothy. Don't add to the word of God. Don't take away from the word of God. Present it the way it is. I mean, why do we teach this way from the Bible? Because we don't just want to come up with some topic and then stuff things in. We want to exposit the scripture, keep it pure. We want you to know what the Word of God says and kind of point you back to the text regularly so you understand this is what the Bible says. I can stand on that truth. The Bible is what strengthens us. The Bible is what we need to persevere to the end. This Word is food. It is the food for your soul. And if you turn away from the Word of God, you'll become weak. Your faith will become weak. You won't be strong and, and, and nourished in the things that matter to God. We're to be people of God that this thing is so precious to us that we read it every day. Now, some people, they kind of look at the Bible like a lucky charm. And if you go in their house, it's sitting right on the table. It's right there. But it's never opened. They never read it. Some people like a Bible in their car. And so when it's in their car, it's kind of the protection, the force field over their car. You know what I'm saying? But they don't know what it says. They don't read the Word of God. It's, it's you know, kind of like the lucky charm deal. Now, other people, it's an intellectual pursuit. And I met a number of them in seminary. They have a lot of head knowledge. They read it. They study it. But it never transforms the soul. There's no depth to them. But for you, Christian, let this be life. Let this be nourishment to you. Feast on it. Make it a regular part of your diet. Take it in. Spend time with the Lord in His Word. Memorize it and then dwell on it. Meditate on the Word of God and let it kind of just seep in your soul. And when you get hit by a heavy, God brings you the Word, doesn't He? When things hit you and you're like, Lord, I don't know what to do, God will bring you the Word of God. Why? Because it's in there. He's, it's been, you've been meditating on it. You've been marinating in the Word of God. You know what I like to do? I like to listen to the Word. And you can listen to messages being taught, but you can also listen to the Word of God being read. And, and it, my mind kind of looks differently than sometimes when just reading it because there's so many now apps and things like that. You can just listen to the Word of God being taught, being spoken straight to you. Feast on the Word of God. And then what he does here, Paul just kind of ends with a benediction, just kind of a, a praise to God for who he is. And if you look at verse 15 again, he says, who is blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of Lord, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, to whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You could almost put that to song, couldn't you? I mean, just lift it up and make it a, a worship hymn. And so, what Paul is saying here to Timothy, and he, he wants it to be clear, he says, Timothy, your calling may be difficult, and it may feel immense sometimes, but your God is so much greater. Your God is sovereign. He's over all things. And his dominion will last forever, Timothy. Stand strong and be that man of God. Do you know why we, we keep coming back? Almost every message I talk about the Word of God, don't I? And there's a reason. There's power in the Word of God. 
Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. When you speak to somebody on the street or to a family member or somebody that just needs help, the power is not in you. You pray like crazy and you ask, God, would you open their heart? And then you begin to share what? The Word, the Word of God, the straight gospel, the truth. I remember about seven years ago, we used to have a Saturday night service. I don't know if you knew that. And one of those Saturday nights, Pastor Neil allowed me to preach. And I preached a message out of 2 Corinthians. And it basically taught on how a person could be reconciled to God. And the reason this message stood out to me is there was a woman there. Her name was Patty Ryan. Maybe some of you remember Patty. Patty kind of stumbled into our church. She saw the light on in the lobby, and she walked in. And after the message, Patty walked up, and I stood right here, and we talked. And Patty shared with me just a little bit about her life, that she was broke, she was destitute, that her husband had left her, and she was depressed. And she asked me if I would pray for her, and I did. I just said, Lord, would you help her and strengthen her? And then I said, Patty, would you mind if I brought a team to your house and we could just meet with you and talk to you and kind of share with you some things of Scripture? She said, okay. And so we showed up the next week with a team, myself and two others. And, and we began to share with Patty the truth of the Bible. Now, Patty began to, to share with us the truth. She was, a, she was addicted to cocaine. She'd been a cocaine addict for 10 years at that point. Her husband left because of her addiction. She had spent all her money. In fact, she was hawking stuff online just trying to pay the bills. And she was, already had the notice where she was going to be kicked out. And so we didn't make any promises that God was going to pay her bills or make those kind of rescues. We shared one basic truth, that she was a sinner. Man, did she need God's mercy. And she knew that. I didn't have to explain that to her. She said, amen. But then we showed the mercy of God through Christ. And we helped her understand that the Bible teaches that even though we're so dark, so lost, God is greater still in Christ. And that's why Jesus came. He died on the cross for her sins. And if she would simply believe, simply trust in Him, He would come in and forgive her. And she would be different, born again. Well, Patty right there received Christ. But what was cool about this particular story for me, guys, is how God works. There's power in the Word of God and in the Gospel. It has power to save, power to change, but God doesn't always just turn away and say, okay, that's good. Things started happening in Patty's life. First of all, she started to come to this church, and people in this church started to pray for Patty and her relationship with her husband. Well, her husband lost his job when she was in Hawaii, so he comes back to the States. They get back together. They reconcile. He comes here, and one Sunday morning, right here, he came up and confessed Christ. I had the privilege to baptize both Patty and her husband, Paul. And then not only did he restore them, he helped them. It was a bumpy road. I mean, it wasn't smooth. It was bumpy. But God slowly restored life to them. Now, Patty passed away about three years ago because of her drug use. Her heart became so weak, she finally died of a heart attack. But here's what I want you to get. On her deathbed, she had a husband that loved her. She had a daughter who came to Christ because of her testimony in Christ. And she knew where she was going. She was not afraid. And when she closed her eyes in this life, she opened her eyes with the Lord. That is the power of the gospel. Always be a Christian that sticks to the word of God. So what did we learn? 
Sometimes we got to run. Sometimes we got to flee. Sometimes we pursue or take hold of. Sometimes we fight. But over all that, man, stay in the Word, please. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your faithfulness. How good is the Bible? How good is your Word to us? Thank you, Lord, for for allowing us this time together as your people to gather and to be nourished in the Word of God. Would you take these words now, Lord? Would you plant them in our hearts? Would you help us, Father, to fight the good fight of faith and to persevere to the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody say